Hello, friends. We are back with episode 93 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. Thank you so much for joining us from wherever you're listening around the world. My name is Eric Nance, and I can never do this show without my awesome co-host, who's busy once again, Mike Thomas. Mike, how's it going today, friend? I'm doing well. Busy, but always time for the weekly highlights. And we have three awesome highlights, if I may say so myself, this week. Oh, yeah. Especially if you like your mathematics and machine learning, you're going you're gonna to have a place here for sure. Um, and so, yeah, let's, let's dive right into it. Our issue this week was curated by John Calder, another one of our longtime Our Weekly curators. So my sincere thanks to him. And of course, he had tremendous help from our fellow Our Weekly team members and contributors around the world. So speaking of math, we're going to get into it with some visualization on top of that. And so whether you're watching, say, the latest news on TV or reading up on your favorite sites, you are bound to hear some opinions from experts and others in matters such as climate change and harnessing energy in new ways. And I certainly don't want to make this political here. I'm just one of those people that tries to remain objective and hopefully leverage available resources to take data-driven approaches to forming my opinion. Well, our first highlight today illustrates that in more ways than one about how we can utilize publicly available data to tell a data-driven story in this space, all within R, of course. And that's where Milos Popovich, hopefully I got that right, um, data analyst at Booking.com, he came across an eye-catching animation of wind speeds on the appropriately named windy.com site. There's a heck of a domain for you. I'll have more to say about that later. But naturally, much like my line of thinking, Milos saw previous attempts at creating a visualization of wind speeds that depicted as heat maps. But he saw an opportunity to maybe instead of that approach, to create much like what this windy.com site had, streamlines of the wind direction over a map colored by velocity so you can quickly see which regions are windier than others. Now, like most projects, this post kicks off by acquiring the wind data and shape files, but it's another showcase of the R community in action as there's a package called RWind available to directly obtain data from the Global Forecast System Portal. Well, there you go. You don't need to put on your scraping chops. You can do it right from the package itself. And the data that comes out of it looks fairly clean. But of course, there is a bit more data munging to do via Tidyverse and SF to transform, say, the latitude and longitude readings into coordinates and establishing the mapping canvas to eventually put the visualization on. Now, perhaps Milos could have stopped the prep work at this point and start the visualization process. But to replicate that look on the windy.com site of that multiple arrows comprising the overall wind stream, there is a little more needed. So why don't you tell us more about that, Mike? Absolutely. This was a very, very interesting data set um, that Milos used. I think part of the data prep process um, involves interpolation, which in this case means filling in wind speed and wind direction for each coordinate point on the map that, that we're going to eventually visualize. And doing that interpolation based upon the data coming in from the nearest weather station to each coordinate point. So you can think about this as, as sort of one of those spatial analysis exercises 
um, where you have to locate centroids and use some sort of distance calculation algorithm. And Milos used the Barnes algorithm in this case, uh, not one that I was super familiar with as I don't do a ton of spatial data analysis on a day-to-day -day basis. But he used the Barnes algorithm to figure out how to interpolate each coordinate value. Um, like any good data viz blog, you know, there's a lot of built-up suspense from start to finish as Milos you know, brings in the data, performs all the necessary transformations, builds the color palette, uh, and you have to make it to the end of the blog post if you want to see the finished product. Uh, the color palette is absolutely beautiful. It's almost worth the it's almost worth the blog post just in and of itself. Um, and making it to the end is absolutely worth it. This might be one of the most beautiful pieces of DataViz I've ever seen. You know, much less the fact that it's in R, and much less the fact that the intention I don't think um, was really that it's supposed to be a piece of data art. I don't think that was the, that was necessarily the goal here, but to me, that's that's sort of the way that it came out. It looks like looks like a Van Gogh. It looks like it belongs in the Louvre, um, but absolutely worthwhile making it all the way to the end of the, the blog post. And if you are somebody who is who's interested in this domain, all of the pieces are available for you between the uh, R packages that, like you said, uh, serve as APIs to the underlying data sets, uh, all the way through to all of his code um, to create that final viz. Yeah, it's fascinating to see just all that pipeline in action. And yeah, this is definitely one of those that when you see the visualization, you get the story of it right away. And this is something that looks professionally done. So again, another testament, like we've heard on many weeks of this show, of just with a little bit of data aggregation and a little bit of massaging and throwing in some math like that interpolation algorithm and even the uh, very famous Pythagorean theorem makes an appearance here as well. To so going back to my geometry roots, um, it was really cool to, to read this. Now, of course, I wanted to be a little greedy as I was doing research for this. And I thought, well, this windy.com thing, this looks interesting. They had a login prompt. So I figured, ah, why not? I'll, I'll make an account there. It's free. Nothing bad will happen to me. And I dig into it. I log in and I realize, oh, geez, this thing has an API for this service too. So maybe, maybe I won't promise it here, but I am saying it on the air, I guess. I could see a very attractive shiny app in the future that integrates this windy.com API with some additional dynamic leaflet magic. I think you could do some really fun stuff with this. So that's on my, uh, maybe my backlog, so to speak of future shiny ideas. You spoke it into your backlog. It's it's out there now for everybody to hold you too. Speaking into existence and eventually it happens. It's just a matter of time, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully future me doesn't regret this later. But, you know, I was inspired by the visualization just like you were. So I, I really, if I'm going to get into spatial analysis, this looks like a great way to start. So excellent blog post by Milos and certainly, yeah, have a read from start to finish. It is a a terrific story nonetheless. Well, I think it's time, Mike. We got to put our soccer cleats on and bring in some, actually, I should say, it's time to bring some advanced football statistics, the football for the rest of the world, here for our second highlight today. So, much like other sports that are adopting analytics and data-driven approaches, advanced analytics in football have taken hold 
even with the clubs themselves, as they look to improve their strategies and game plans. And one of those statistics is called expected goals, or XG for short, not to be confused with XG boost. (laughs) I admit I was a little confused about that in the beginning. But XG is derived from a fairly complex logistic regression model that produces a zero to one score with higher values indicating a higher chance of scoring a goal from a particular position during the pitch. Now, multiple football statistics sites called Understat and FOTMOB routinely share XG values for each game, so you can grab this anytime you want. But our fellow Art Weekly curator, Tony Elhabar, thinks XG has lost a little bit of its novelty. So, of course, he takes matters into his own hands and writes a new blog post putting the spotlight on another promising advanced statistic for the clubs to add to their arsenal. So what do you think he was up to here, Mike? Well, it's nice to hear from our our good friend, Tony. And yes, it's football season and it's also football season. Um, I think it's no secret that analytics and data science have taken over the sports world. You know, ever since Billy Bean started using sabermetrics in Oakland for baseball, I feel like, and I'm doing some podcast air quotes here, the analytics are brought up in like every sports broadcast conversation uh, that you'll tune into. And and now that we're back in American football season as well, we get to see coaches clutching their tablets, going for it on fourth down because the data told them to. Uh, It's great. (laughs) But one key sports analytics metrics that has metric that has dominated in recent years is this notion of like expected events, like you're talking about in baseball, expected strikeouts, um, expected goals in soccer, expected touchdowns. And, and while expected goals seems like it fits into the, the soccer domain really well, this other expected style metric that is now of interest is estimating expected points in soccer. So if you're not familiar with how soccer or, or football to the rest of the world um, works from a points perspective at the end of a game you either receive zero one or three points so zero points for a loss one for a draw and three for a win is that the same as hockey eric it's close it's zero one and two for hockey one and two okay so zero one and three for soccer and that's pretty that's pretty universal uh, in the u.s and europe and essentially this expected points metric is just trying to predict the outcome of a soccer game, if you really think about it, there's there's these three outcomes, but which makes it interesting because it's not just a binary dependent variable that we have here. The other thing that's kind of interesting is is the d- dependent variable is a number. It's zero, one, or three, although it is discrete from a statistics standpoint. Um, and Tony's blog does an awesome job of, of kind of talking about all of those different angles, about how you might model expected points. And he walks through a, a few different models with some great code snippets around Poisson processes, uh, linear regression, and multinomial logistic regression, I think, are, are the main ones that he highlights here. So a lot of code, a lot of R code. If you are looking to develop a similar model yourself, it's all right there for you to get started. Yeah, and what was interesting here is that, that the aforementioned stat XG does come from multiple sites. So part of his blog post is actually comparing how the the XG from um, under understat and FOTMOB. Yes, thank you, Mike. Understat and FOTMOB, and how they are similar or different 
and incorporating XG as part of the XPTS pipeline. And so there's some interesting takes on how you can be a little more of a careful eye as you evaluate where these advanced statistics are coming from. So really interesting, you know, data-driven story here. And again, lots of math to sink your teeth into with probability distributions. And certainly for all of our football enthusiasts, this should be a lot of fun to read. And this is definitely not Tony's first post in this domain. So he he tackles so many issues around uh, football analytics. So definitely check out his blog archive for more awesome uh, data-driven takes on advanced and even basic statistics for good measure. Absolutely. Yeah. And he has some beautiful uh, data visualizations as well for comparing those two uh, football soccer statistics sites, Understat and FOTMOB, which is, is really like a model comparison uh, visual, which which is I think is super useful, sometimes an underrated uh, exercise. Well, you set me up well, Mike, because um, when we speak about modeling, our last highlight is going to talk about a very important step in a modeling pipeline, especially when it comes to machine learning. So on top of the many announcements that we've covered in previous episodes that were coming out of the recent RStudioConf, we also heard about Posit's focus on not just providing intuitive machine learning pipelines via tidy models for creating your machine learning models, but then taking those models into a production system with as little friction as possible. Now, at the risk of introducing another hot take here, so you better watch me here, um, you would often hear within various conversations among data scientists and ops engineers that R is just fine for prototyping that model, but we can't put stuff like that into production. Oh, please, no, we don't need to hear that anymore because case in point, our third highlight is both a post and a video tutorial authored by Posit software engineer Julia Silge on using the Vetiver package to orchestrate the production process for your models. Of course, we need a model first. So much like her previous blog post, Julia takes the recent Tidy Tuesday data set. And this previous week, it was about Lego set metrics, which of course, I have no shortage of Legos in this house. I always like seeing that. And she turns loose on creating a simple production model for demonstration. Now, she is upfront in saying that this model won't be winning any top prediction awards. You won't be seeing this win any slice competitions. But this model does take the name of a Lego set and predicts how many bricks it contains. So at least it's intuitive to think about. But now comes the true intent of this post. Once she has the model created, it is as simple as creating a new object with a call to the function vetiver underscore model to encapsulate all the underpinnings needed to self-contain the model itself. What comes next is the integration with the pins package that offers up an easy way to transfer the model to a repository, such as Amazon S3, Azure Storage, RStudio Connect, and more, so that now with the function vetiver pin write, you can have your model and its associated version captured in this repository. That's a huge step to making your model more accessible to different systems. And that's terrific even on its own. 
but to create a truly plug and play component of the model that utilizes API and container technology. Through Vetiver, you can now create a plumber API out of your model object and then create a robust Docker file, all with simple function calls without you necessarily having to be level industry expert at Docker container forming or API development. All of these are taken care of for you. So now you have the chance to host this model anywhere that can run Docker containers and expose a web service. And that is a very wide net, so to speak, of options that you can do for hosting. That is are the things that ops engineers, DevOps engineers, and, and IT professionals really want to see is the ability to be able to move these models to different systems without any real overhead and reconstructing that all the time. So I think that is hugely important. And this post and the video tutorial do an amazing job of visualizing that. So I'm truly impressed by this. I'm curious, Mike, what are your takes on Julia's post here? This one, I was super excited about when I saw it as a highlight as well. I feel like it's a great way to round out these three highlights today. I feel like Julia Silgi, if you're not familiar with her and you're an RStats user, you you really should be. She deserves an award for the amount of, I think, applied ML education content that she puts together for the public. If you haven't had a chance to check out her YouTube ML screencast where she builds a model from in R from start to finish, many, many different times across many, many different data sets and domains. I highly, highly recommend watching this series. I am willing to bet all of my RStats hex stickers that you will learn at least one thing. Um, has she been on Sliced? She has, yes. She has been on Sliced. Oh, I missed that. I'm going to have to watch that episode. But um, I think, you know, Julia and Max and a few others over at RStudio were working pretty heavily on tidy models for the last couple of years. And she recently has extended beyond her, her tidy models development work at our studio and is now focusing full-time on ML ops, which is a hugely needed area that we don't have enough good tools for. So I think her work is going to impact a, an absolutely gigantic audience of folks who are just trying to put their models somewhere where they can be useful, right? Not on their own laptop. It's pretty amazing to see the progression of this ecosystem of packages, right? We started out kind of with tidy models so that you can you can build the model itself. Now we have pins, which allows us to uh, very easily pin a model or a data set up to a potential cloud service like an AWS S3 bucket or Azure or RStudio Connect server, and then Finally, I think most recently, we have the Vetiver package for doing all of the things that you need to do from an ML ops perspective, versioning that model, deploying that model, um, model comparison, and model monitoring. So very, very cool blog post. If, like me, you've also been looking for a line in Docker to use the RN package with your Docker file, there is some beautiful code in this blog post that shows you exactly how to do that um, in, in a clean way. So, yeah, I, I know I, when that was spun in there without you, the user having to explicitly say that, that is 
where you see the overall picture of these different individual components, whether they're from the tidy model side of things, the ML ops side of things, and even just package reproducibility and plumber APIs. When you see all of it blended together, that is the stuff that gets the attention of not just data scientists, but then when that, when the investment to learn and deploy these, these tools into say a, a work environment, bringing that justification of how it greatly simplifies and enables your, your, um, your work to be, you know, even faster with less air prone. And that to me is a huge story in this. So the fact that it integrates all this together so nicely, I think is the part that really gets me, gets me going to, in, and inspired to do this even further. And frankly, I have an even bigger appreciation for that as someone that as of a couple of years ago, tried to stitch this all together myself, fit a model in R, figure out how to put it in S3, cook up my own hodgepodge of a versioning scheme, expose it into a shiny app. And, you know, I won't, I think I got pretty well, but boy, the effort to do all that myself was a lot. So the fact that Vetiver and the associated integrations that we talk about can save you that headache you concentrate on the stuff that matters. And that to me is is what's really cool here. Well, thank you for paving the way for Vetiver. <laughs> I'm just teasing, but um, yeah, absolutely. I, I just continue to be fascinated and almost left speechless, as you can tell, of, of really enjoying watching the journey of this ecosystem of packages. And like you said, I think we can relate quite a bit to thinking about where we've come from where we've been and uh, where the ecosystem is now. Yep, absolutely. Can't say better myself, um, but there's there's always more, not just in this space, but for the rest of the R Weekly issue. So we'll take a chance to put a spotlight on a couple of things that also caught our attention. And for myself, I'll stick with this overall modeling and ML domain and mention the new CRAN release of the new LUZ package. That's authored by Daniel Fabel at our studio Reposit. The goal of this package is to simplify the code needed for key steps in a deep learning project that utilizes Torch, which we've covered in previous R Weekly highlights before. And this can be a huge asset to the, both those that are new to Torch, certainly I'm new to it, but also this package contains easy ways to basically offload the processing and compare and contrast between analytics that are run on the CPU unit, i.e. multiple cores, and those fancy GPUs that you keep hearing about both from the gaming community and also in cloud operations. So that, again, can be a huge asset to those coming from new to this domain and also those looking to eke out performance without having to completely rewrite their code from scratch every time. So I think that's a huge win in this space. So I'll be keeping an eye on that as I begin my journeys into that. How about TPUs? Just CPUs. Oh yeah, TPUs. you really want to get it high level for me. Jeez, one thing at a time, my friend. I have enough to learn. <laughs> so I can use a nice TPU on my 500 row data set. And <laughs> but uh, what I saw uh, for an extra highlight that I'll, I'll throw out there is I'm a huge fan of survival analysis. I see so many real world applications for it, you know, outside of medicine and healthcare. And I think it's a technique that's not necessarily taught like in a typical stats 101, stats 201 
course, so it kind of slips through the cracks. Um, but Joseph Rickert authored a post called Beneath and Beyond the Cox Model, which was published on Our Views. And it's a great dive into the un- underpinnings of survival models and not just kind of the Cox proportional hazard model uh, that, that is sort of the, the most popular model in that space. And what really just struck me about reading um, more in depth into these uh, survival models is the fact that the math, which is really just kind of these stochastic counting models, is only like 30 years old. So it really hasn't been around that long, but it's it's such a powerful technique um, that it gets used a lot of different places. And, and I try to use it um, whenever I see a problem that, that is really well suited for it, which happens happens quite a bit. I don't know if I should feel happy or sad that I'm older than that stat method. So, uh, hmm. but no, that's a great find, Mike. Excellent. I've been using survival analysis since my very early days of statistics. So it's great to see that get some attention here. And certainly shout out to Joe Rickard. I've had the pleasure of collaborating with him on a couple of the R Consortium collaborations, and it's always been a pleasure to talk with him. So if you're listening, Joe, hi, uh, but I'm sure I'll be speaking with him again soon. Um, but in any event, there's a whole lot more to this issue to find. So head to rweekly.org and you'll find all the links, all the issues and the archive as well if you missed any of the previous weeks. And if you see a great story, blog post, video tutorial, new package that you think deserves some great attention here, please just send us a pull request. You can find all the details at rweekly.org handy link to get to the draft right away. Send your little poll request and markdown and our curator will take care of it for you. So yeah, thanks. This has been a great episode as always. And uh, Mike, where can people find you on your adventures these days? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. Very nice. I am at the Rcast and certainly keep the feedback coming. Mike and I always like to evolve in our format here so definitely give us feedback if you like uh, some of our recent changes and certainly we'll keep pressing forward because our weekly never stops right (laughs) that's that's a good thing in my opinion so we're gonna we'll wrap up episode 93 and we will be back with another edition of our weekly highlights next week